You're listening to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. We shine a light on topics that matter to digital and data leaders within the NHS. I'm Johnny Sweeney and I help connect digital leaders with interim talents and I'm your host. Welcome to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast everyone. Thank you for joining me today to discuss digital transformation within the NHS. Before we delve deeper into the topic, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. So I'll start us off. My name's Johnny. I work with, on the NHS team here at Evolution, working specifically with newly formed ICSs across the country. My goal is to help organisations realise their true potential towards better patient care through digital technology and innovation. That's me. Uh, Zishan, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Yeah, sure. I'm Dr. Zishan Yusuf. I'm a GP in uh, West Birmingham, as well as the uh, Chief Clinical Information Officer for Primary Care for Black Country uh, ICB, the Digital Clinical Safety Officer for the same, as well as the PICL for um, the uh, for the remote monitoring service for the same. Excellent. Thank you, Zishan. Linda, would you like to go next? Yes. Thanks, Johnny. Uh, so I'm Linda Vernon um, and my Sunday title is Digital Interim, Digital Culture and Transformation Clinical Lead for Lancashire and South Cumbria Integrated Care Board. Um, so that's essentially uh, like a CCIO role. Um, we did quite deliberately put the word culture into the title because I think we recognise that culture is a big part of transformation and it's the behaviour change element that um, is sometimes the, the, the biggest challenge and the, the hurdle to overcome with transformation. Um, I am an ex-MSK uh, advanced physio practitioner, so my, my role was physiotherapy in the past um, and I'm currently overseeing programmes of work around person health record, uh, digital inclusion, which is my passion, uh, and digital personalised care. Uh, EPACs, so that's the end of life records and um, population health management. And then I provide digital clinical leadership to the to the wider digital portfolio for the ICB. And we have a population of 1.8 million um, <clears throat> across four different places. That's me. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Linda. Uh, Glenn, would you like to go next? Yes, good afternoon. Yep, Glenn Took. Um, I'm the Unified Digital Care Programme Manager within Suffolk and North East Essex ICS. Um, within that role, I'm responsible for the delivery of the virtual wards, remote care, and all the the digital technology elements that uh, feed into the, that, into supporting those. Okay, brilliant. Thank you, Glenn. And last but not least, Steve. Thanks, Johnny. So I'm Steve Elwin. Uh, I'm the head of workforce transformation and digital workforce for the Dorset Integrated Care System. Um, I sit in that integrated care system space um, along with um, a, a number of colleagues focusing on the workforce challenges and opportunities that are presented um, to integrated care systems and the NHS as a whole, especially in the present climate. Um, and with the, the looking at digital workforce, um, there's a number of elements there really, which is around how do we um, uh, how do we prepare our workforce to be able to um, you know, maximize the opportunities and benefits and potential that um, digital transformation presents? Um, and how do we um, release human beings to do more of what human beings do best by making the best use of digital i would say would be the two key areas of focus within my role excellent thank you very much steve uh, once again thank you everyone for taking part today uh, now that we've done a quick introduction i work my way around the room and um let's move on to the questions relating to our topic obviously digital transformation within the nhs um so zishan would you like to start us off with your question and a little bit of context behind the question sure um, so uh, my question was, how do we ensure the pace of digital transformation does not leave people behind? 
leading to uh, inequalities and specifically digital inequalities. Um, that's been brought up as a particular uh, point of concern in, uh, in uh, my local area. We have probably the highest level of deprivation in the country outside of, so black country and Birmingham itself probably have the highest levels of deprivation um, in the country or I've been repeatedly told, which is nice to hear. Um, and it's um, something that uh, it's, it's kind of, we, we've been trying to address uh, repeatedly with um, a couple of programs to see if we can help, uh, we can well support the populace really with this type of uh, issue. Um, so it's, uh, but there's this thing here where we become quite focused and overly so on everything's got to be advanced and everything's got to go forward, but we're forgetting we're leaving these people behind. Um, and all it takes is to realize when you, it's, it's sort of why the, why I've noticed that face-to-face -face has been always so um, important to people because for a lot of people, for them, that's that's how they kind of reach out to their health practitioner is is being the face to face. But there's this thing about technology and there's this thing about um, not understanding it. So even though two years of COVID has kind of made us advance almost 10 years, we still have people who are still there from two years ago um, and they're still they've been left behind. Um, and then when you realize when you take a step back that they're still in the same place and um and their health is suffering as a result of that um so that's sorry the broader context of my question really is like um um how do how do we kind of make sure that we are supporting them individually and uh, thoughts on this kind of subject excellent thank you zishan uh, so we'll start with steve your thoughts on this question thanks zishan i think it's a really um interesting question and one i know comes up in in, in our integrated care system an awful lot um uh, as well and I think for me, there's there's something about um, our focus is around people rather than the wider workforce. I think when we talk about digital readiness and digital transformation, there's a risk that we can focus inward uh, and think about how do we transform our services? How do we uh, transform our workforce? Um, I think as you've identified, it's equally important that we um, work with um, our population, the people who live in our area to ensure that we're um, supporting them in the best way that we possibly can. Um, I think there's something there about um, using the tools that we have available to us or developing them to seek to understand the, um, the levels of digital fluency um, that exists within our population um, and then using that data and insights to drive our response um, to, to our population in, in the best way. Um, so I, I know examples of where we're doing this in, in Dorset and it's, it's working very well uh, in, in terms of um, building that understanding of um, digital fluency, people's digital capabilities, um, and then working locally to develop um, digital champion roles who can then um, support from the NHS um, with our patients and our, our, our residents of Dorset in order to help um, provide the support they need. Now that is sometimes it's capability, but I think also sometimes it's, it's access to appropriate equipment and you know, um, high speed broadband, for example. Um, so that then for us is a, a, an approach, I think, which is really important for every integrated care system to take, which is that collaborative approach, working with local authorities to look at government schemes and other initiatives that could be tapped into in order to be able to provide those that are in um, more areas of deprivation um, with um, the equipment required to access digital services, um, be that broadband um, tokens, be that um, iPads um, or, or equivalent 
And again, I've seen schemes like this work really, really well to help bridge that gap. Um, and those digital champions I spoke about, you know, um, yes, we have employed staff in those roles, but also I think it's about, again, using people from within the, uh, well, using is the wrong word to use, but working with people within the community to undertake those roles, that, that true peer-to-peer -peer support um, where um, uh, volunteers, you know, people from patient engagement groups, for example, have, have come forward off the back of the pandemic, having volunteered in other ways, uh, and demonstrating a real interest in being a digital champion and supporting um, other people within their community to enhance their digital capabilities. So um, I could I could go on, but just to sort of highlight a few um, initiatives that I'm aware of that have been working well elsewhere and certainly working well for us in Dorset in terms of in terms of bridging that gap. But I do think, and it is important, and we do have to recognise that that still doesn't work for everybody and it still doesn't reach everybody, and we still have to have an offer. Um, and, and a part of our service that can be accessed in what we would consider to be more of a traditional way. And the NHS um, can never move away from that because that's such an important and valuable um, uh, uh, access point for all those people. Brilliant. Thanks, Steve. Um, Linda, we'll move on to you. Uh, thanks. And brilliant questions, Ishan, and, and something that is very, very dear to my heart um, and I could probably talk for an hour about, so <laughs> I won't. Um, so just picking up on Stephen's last point, I think we do have to acknowledge that for some people, digital will never be um, a, a route to accessing and transacting with health and care. And we must always keep the non-digital channels open for some. Um, and you're right in that um, the pandemic did accelerate digital transformation in healthcare. Um, and it also encouraged more people to become digitally activated. So pre-pandemic, um, it was estimated that 20% of the population were digitally excluded. It's now considered to be closer to 5%. But I think we need to be really mindful that that 5% are probably the people who most need to use our services and probably are the highest users. So they're the people we could potentially help the most. Um, if we gave them, you know, as Stephen said, the devices, the connectivity, and very much the skills and the confidence. So we talk in Lancashire and South Cumbria about digital activation in the same context as patient activation. So the knowledge, skills, and confidence to use digital tools to transact with health and care and to manage your health and well-being. Um, and we've we've developed over the last three years or so, uh, but particularly during pandemic, a program of work that has um, supported the digital inclusion agenda that has been targeted at uh, those people who are in those um, highest risk of health inequalities groups. So, um, for example, like like yourself in the Midlands, we've got um, in one of our four places, 70% of the population are in the core 20 group. So in the 20% most deprived in the country. So we're very, very high levels of deprivation and some really challenging health outcomes for, for certain conditions as well. Um, so we've targeted those who are most at risk, mainly by um, using and, and um, uh, collaborating with our voluntary community faith and social enterprise sector. Uh, they've been invaluable because they're often very close to those communities already. Um, as Stephen said, local government. So during the pandemic, local government were invaluable in terms of um, the, the giving out of devices and um, mobile data, whereas we in health were giving the knowledge, skills and confidence. So, so quite a, a pro an evolving programme of work. One of the things that's evolved from that that I think is really um, going to, to help 
raise this on everybody's agenda is we've been working with the Northwest Regional Digital Team to develop a citizen impact assessment so that all digital transformation and in fact all transformation in the ICB considers not just health inequalities but the wider equality agenda including sort of digital impact financial impact and indeed the sustainability of the transformation in terms of its impact on the environment so the citizen impact assessment is uh, almost near it's near completion it's due to be launched at the connect conference in um next month in september in blackpool and that will provide uh, a framework for assessing the impact of transformation programs on the citizen, on the person, the people that we're serving. So I think that'll be a big help. And then the final thing, I think uh, for us, we're on an early journey, but user-centered design, actually designing services around those people. Because if you can design services that will meet those who have the highest challenges, the greatest challenges, the most risk of health inequalities, the most what, what have been called hard to reach, and we know hard to reach is, is a misnomer, but those who've been traditionally called hard to reach, if we can design services that will meet their needs, we can design services for anyone. Brilliant. Um, that sounds amazing. Really. Excellent. Thanks for that, Linda. And Glenn, we'll move on to you. Your thoughts? Yeah, thanks for that. So, I think Stephen and uh, Linda have covered a lot of the points. I was sort of scribbling down here, but <laughs> going last is always the point. What we've done in Suffolk North East Texas, we've, we've got a phrase, and it's nothing new, I'm sure, digital first, but not digital only. Um, in the sense, what we're looking to do there is actually, you know, there's the digital dividend which follows on from that. The idea being that where we can use digital care, we will use it, but the idea is actually then aims to free up time for those that can't use it so you know the, the the dividend payment is you know by by getting digital to use where you can where it does fit those that can't the, you know the deprived areas you know the excluded and so forth can still reach out to a face-to-face -face consultation if they require it and so forth because we're aiming to free up time um, we recently conducted a survey with healthwatch essex um, like yourselves sajam we've got a an area of our in our patch which is you know one of the more deprived areas um and we did a specific survey on there we're probably familiar with blood blood pressure at home the impulse oximetry at home you know initiatives we conducted a survey with health watchers about how people used it how they interacted with it and the vast majority of the feedback we got there was they got the the, the tools as it were to do the job but most of them fed back that actually what they wanted was to speak to someone. They wanted to go and talk to somebody. They wanted that face-to-face -face interaction for the confidence factor, if nothing else. Um, however, it was quite broad and you know, marked differences as to you know who reacted in that sense. So the younger generation, generally speaking, were more receptive of it, even though they may have been more in the deprived areas. Whereas the older, you know, slightly older, you know, generation were still focusing very much on I want an appointment with my GP because that's what my that's what I want so I think that's how I've always reacted so, to it um so we've we've had that sort of interesting survey but other than that I so I think I can really just echo a lot of what Stephen and, and Linda have said previously I don't think there's much more I can add to the the question than that to be honest with you it's quite <laughs> no that's excellent thank, oh, thank, thank you Glenn I say it was covered in a great deal of depth that was <laughs> Really good. Thanks for that, guys. Each channel, hopefully that's uh, put a good answer to that question. 
No, I think these are uh, Stephen, uh, Linda, Glenn. These, these are really fantastic answers and stuff. And it's not like I'm marking your homework, but it's um, <laughs> it's 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 always really great to like hear what other people's thoughts on this kind of thing is. Is because um, um, and we are doing very similar type pro uh, kind of projects that like we've mentioned earlier. So it's it's kind of also reassuring to know that you're going on the right path. Um, uh, we also have things like um, digital courses. For people so they can actually improve people's skill sets on just accessing just normal levels of technology um and um uh, the, the accesses and the data and all that it's it's actually kind of uh reassuring to know that everyone's like people are thinking of similar and you know you're not doing something that's so out of the box that's simply not going to work you know thanks glenn did you have something to add there yeah, so I saw Stephen's hand up as well. But yeah, just so one of the things I was thinking of, and Linda, you mentioned the stat about 20% of people being you know, excluded, dropping to 5%. Uh, and there is a, a, a train of thought, because I come from a technology background, I'm not a clinician at all, um, that actually that 5% will drop year on year, but we will never get to zero. And I think that's the important part we've got to remember. You know, it will logarithmically scale off, but we will never get to zero. There'll always be somebody excluded for a million and one reasons, and it might well be, Steve, you must have it in Dorset, where you've got you know people out of zone, out of reach of you know decent broadband, decent mobile phone signal, and so forth. It must happen. It happens all over the country. It certainly happens in my space on the coast. So they will never be able to access decent mobile phone signal. Therefore, they may be excluded for that very reason. For, for nothing else just want to highlight that that one point really no good point to raise and steve thanks john yeah, yeah really good really good points being added in as well and i think the, the bit that was in my mind and I, I, it's a uh, something i say often as well is that you know the the nhs um we mustn't be afraid to learn from those that have done it well i think if we look back um take the banking sector for example you know i, I remember when um uh, i think i'm old enough now to remember when digital banking was first starting to be introduced and talked about i think actually first of all it was telephone banking and then it very moved it moved on to digital banking um and i remember the the challenges that were being faced there in terms of changing people's behavior um and and um and um yeah mindset and um i'm sure i'm sure it wasn't a um straightforward journey but it's almost something we don't we don't even think about now we all have an app for every financial product we probably have and more um and we, we you again the, the usage and utilization is, is significantly high yes there are still banks that are open on the high street to provide that point of access that we've alluded to for all those people who you know for them digital is, is not just doesn't work for them uh, and i think you know it's just should shouldn't be afraid to think in a similar way and says that there will be a high percentage of our population across the whole of the country who for them um, digital services and accessing services in a digital way will be appropriate but we will still always need our high street branches um, for those where it doesn't quite work excellent good point steve and then we'll just come to you again just before we move on to the next question yeah, just one final point that um, I'm sure uh, in Steve's role he'll be sort of well versed in. It's not just the people who use services that are digitally excluded. It is sometimes the people who are delivering services as well. And indeed, some of our frontline staff have outdated equipment or no equipment or inappropriate equipment or lack some of the skills to do to do the job. So whilst it's really important that we try to reach the citizens who are digitally excluded, we must also make sure that our, our workforce are equipped with the right um, tools and skills to be able to do their job as well. Thank you, Linda. And sorry, Zishan, did you just want to add something else then before we move on? 
Actually, I, I thought I'm going to add it to Linda's response to her question because it, it kind of does lead on to what she was saying. So I'll save the response to that, but I just want to make a note for myself when we get to it. That's fantastic. Uh, excellent. So I think we'll move on to our next question then. Steve, if you'd like to go next with your question. Absolutely. So mine is um, around language. I think the word digital in itself doesn't help. It's unhelpful. It means different things to different people. And, um, you know, it strikes fear into some people as well. Um, and for me, uh, the two terms that are used almost uh, um, inter interchangeably are digital transformation versus transformation in the digital age. Uh, and uh, my question is, do do we perceive them to be the same? Uh, and is there is there one that lands uh, better with us or, or we connect with more? Um, uh, because, as I say, it, 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 from, in terms of the background context here, um, I, I hear digital transformation used an awful lot, um, and I, I am uh, quite provocative in terms of asking people, do they really mean digital transformation, or do they mean transformation that's taking place in the digital age? Uh, and it provokes some really interesting conversations, and when uh, thinking about today's discussion, I thought, it would be a great one to to ask the panel and see what other people's thoughts were. Excellent, great question, Steve. Uh, I think we'll start with Linda this time. Yeah, thanks, Steve. That that is a really really good question, and indeed, it's one that um, we haven't framed it as that question, but the concept we've been pondering as a as a digital senior leadership team and and a team of program leads um, over the last few weeks because we're in the middle of writing our digital transformation and investment plan at the moment, and. Um, and we, we've traditionally been using this term, uh, and it's not quite correct. We've been talking about clinically led or clinically informed, digitally enabled transformation. And it's the clinical bit that I think needs to be slightly revolutionized because it's not just clinical um, services that we are um, that we're we're transforming. Um, I think we need to consider the needs of, you know, all transformation is based around the clinical or the operational or the business needs of that organization. And digital has a massive part to play in that. Um, I think if we can shift the emphasis from digital transformation to transformation in the digital age or something more along those lines, I think it helps to get us more understanding of the place that digital plays that digital digital really shouldn't be sitting as a program on its own with a or a portfolio with a um plan of its own and a strategy of its own it actually weaves through everything that integrated care boards are doing everything that our partner organizations are doing and digital needs to be seen as embedded in the strategy the plans the transformation um and i think that starts with it, it, it what one of the challenges I find having I've worked in digital for five years now and uh, coming from a clinical background, having recognized that there were problems that technology probably could solve. It still surprises me to see that sometimes we are influenced by the shiny solutions rather than trying to tease out and understand the problems that frontline staff are facing. And I think if we if we think about that transformation being the key element and digital enabling it, it puts us in a place where we'll get far better adoption because we're addressing the problems that people really have. So I'm I'm all in favour of us changing to the latter one. I think that would be much more useful. Excellent, really interesting. Thank you, Linda. Uh, Glenn, we'll come to you next. Thank you. Yeah, um, I'd say the way you, you pose the question, you know, digital transformation versus di transforma transformation digital age, are they the same? Yeah, no, we're not. I believe they're not. 
we are living in the digital age. However, what we now need to do is transform the NHS to live to fit a digital age. Um, and there's a different way of working. You talked, you mentioned in the previous question about the banks. You know, there's a transformation of the way we interact with banks over the last 10, 15, 20 years or so that has almost seamlessly happened and we now sort of take for granted. And it's that transformation that we as NHS leaders now need to sort of pick up on and work out how do we make the benefits and how do we best use the art of the possible that the digital age gives us. Um, and I don't know what the answers are. As I say, I'm not a clinician. I can my, my role is to provide options and opportunities that will then shape and you know how we move forward and how we can develop that in in our in our in my space. Um, but yeah, you know, one of the things I, I was thinking about when I was looking at this this question, you know, the NHS is 70 plus years old, um, and broadly speaking, you know, it's, it's operating in a model that's not dissimilar to what it was 25, 30, 40 years ago. What we've got the opportunity to, to do now within this digital age is actually bring it up to speed. And COVID has helped accelerate that massively. You know, we, we all know that. I think, Sushan, you mentioned 10 years worth of development in two. Well, you know, if I'd possibly even more, I'd suggest. Um, but yeah, we've got to somehow pull it forward now over the next three to five years as we you know move into the ICB way of working and the structures that that allows us to is actually I'd suggest we've got to you know accelerate it another 10 years as well to make best use of those options and opportunities it gives us um one of the CIOs in, in one of our trusts came up with a great quote yesterday this is a massive opportunity and we can't miss it you know it would be a huge waste of time if we've missed this opportunity that the the ICS transformation gives us, we've all got that opportunity now to actually make a huge change and a huge impact. Um, and embracing digital technology, embracing the opportunities it can give us, will allow us with the right mindsets, with the right workforces, with the right way of thinking, we, we can really improve the patient experience and, and outcomes. Great answer. Thanks very much for that, Glenn. And Zisha, we'll move on to you. Thanks. Um, I, I love this question because it's 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 looking at a, it's looking at something in a, from an aspect I haven't even thought of before. And I, I agree wholeheartedly with what um, Glenn and Linda said of transformation in the digital age, and that's the age that we're in now. Seems more correct. That is what we are in. Um, and it's more about this evolution of the NHS. It's we're not. You know, we're not suddenly swapping, uh, you know, swapping things out for other things. We're not swapping out um, uh, a surgeon for, um, uh, well, I can't even think of a good parallel, which uh, doesn't sound insulting. So um, uh, I'm a GP, not an orthopedic surgeon. Um, we're wonderful human beings. Um, but it's, uh, it, it, Linda said something that always comes back to this thing as a clinician and that is what is the problem you're trying to solve and with nice shiny tech solutions which are wonderful the thing is they come from a lot of the end solutions so you can't it, it, it's sort of it's, it's sort of like i'm going to give this person wings but that person's like that's fine but all i needed was a, a beak to crack this egg open or something i can't i can't eat but thanks for the wings i'll i guess i'll i'll fly in the sea Right. Um, it's 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 that that's always the problem when we misname this thing is that we're trying to do things which are actually unnecessary and putting resources in the wrong space. So identifying the problem you're trying to solve is far far more useful. 
And the thing is, I can't help but jump onto uh, uh, Linda's question there because it, it kind of links for me for these two here together and what she mentioned earlier. And I, I've been dying to just say it about parallels. And um, we have examples where we have um, community cardiology nurses, and I was on a call with them the other day, and they don't have electronic prescription services. And like, so now we have this thing where we have parts of the NHS, which is evolving in this digital age at different paces. And now we're at an ICB level. These should all be an equality. There should be an equality across the evolution. We've got one sector in primary care, which is basically told, right, you've got to do electronic prescriptions. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. Um, and then another service has been completely ignored. And they're still having to do, they're still 10 steps behind. Um, and so there's quite easily problems across that need to be solved. But we're going at, um, we're going at, uh, at the wrong pace for different kind of services. So we're not transforming we're not evolving we're kind of staying much the same so we have to acknowledge that the age that we're in now is the digital age sorry this is a rambling answer right no, uh, it's just um it, it's just uh, it's it just it's just like things start to snap crackle and pop now um so it's it's we are in this digital age and we just have to acknowledge that and what we are saying is uh, we're not saying we're dragging the nhs you know kicking and screaming into the century of the food bat we're like you know bringing the NHS, um, we're kind of bringing the NHS up to a level of parity that we believe they should be at to kind of bring justice to the people that we um, are there to support and, you know, help out. So um, I don't know, see if that answers your question at all. <laughs> but um, I, I feel like, though, it's just that there's just so much meat behind it, right, that I just wanted to kind of just have a good psych chunk of it and even though I may not answer it I just thought it brings a lot of food for thought. Yeah, no, it's, it's really good to you Sam and I think you know I think all the answers that Glenn and, and Linda as well I think I resonate with everything that you've all been saying and it's um it's it's a really interesting one I guess the way the way I look at it with through a workforce lens is what does the skills look like um under each of those so I think we talk about digital transformation I think as we've alluded to we're potentially putting the wrong word first and and Linda I absolutely connect with your point around um, you know, we shouldn't have we shouldn't have a separate digital strategy. Digital is an enabler that should be um, a golden thread that runs through all of our strategies. Uh, yet here we are, all of us probably with separate digital strategies, digital workforce strategies, because uh, we need that uh, separate initial focus to successfully embed it. Uh, upon the establishment of the um, integrated care boards, um, you know, there's a new people strategy going to be written soon, and a new digital strategy. Of course, you'd expect that. Um, the two should really be written side by side alongside many other strategies as well, uh, interweaving and crossing over. Otherwise, we risk um, digital always being something separate and seen separate as well. Um, I think the, the putting the digital before transformation as well puts us in this space where we um, we we have a different perception of what that means in the sense that um, everything's going to be digitally transformed. And that means that there's a computer going to do it. Is, is it a robot in, in your example, Zishan, who's going to replace the orthopedic surgeon? You know, is that is that where we're going? We're building robots now for the NHS. Uh, and I think it gives the wrong connotations. Whereas when we really break it down to what skills do we need to be able to do what's being described here, transformation is transformation, right? There's there's the same skills apply regardless of whether it's digital transformation or non-digital transformation in terms of project management, program management, you know, user, um, user experience, focus, user centered, um, uh, and so on and so forth, and, and stakeholder engagement and communication skills and, and so on and so forth. Um, 
But the difference for me, I think, is when you then put the lens of being in a digital age, it's then about, OK, so what's the what is that lens? What is that layer of uh, appreciation and awareness and um, uh, and um, acceptance of the digital age? What does that bring that's different to that skill set? So that's um, you say that that acceptance and awareness of, yes, we are in a digital age and things are very different now. And there might be opportunities that I can tap into, but it's not the only option. And actually, therefore, for me, digital transformation can sometimes suggest that we're already leaping to digital being the solution, whereas transformation in the digital age is we're still we are transforming. We're doing it in digital age. We're aware of the options that are available to us um, and um, we can make the best use of those. But it, digital is not is not the only option. Um, and I think that's that's the, the beat of the drum that I bang, certainly in the networks that I move in and, and, and try and share that message with you. Excellent. Thanks for that, Steve. Uh, right, I think we'll move on to our next question. Um, Linda, over to you for your question. Super, thanks, Johnny. Um, so my question is, in the newly formed ICBs, how are we ensuring that sectors beyond traditional healthcare providers are brought along on the transformation journey towards providing better health outcomes? So, um, so I guess that for me is... Um, the language has somewhat changed from the centre right through the the the, the, um, the organisations in that we're no longer talking about health in isolation. We're talking about and we're no longer talking only about secondary care, because I think secondary care was always the priority in health and uh, and then health was the priority. And now we're thinking about health and care, which is wonderful because we're recognising that social care is a really important aspect and regulated care is a really important aspect of keeping our people healthy and well and looking after them when they're not. Um, so we've got the health and care bill and we've got um, the, the plan for digital transformation of digital health and care. But I'm thinking at the moment about the wider partnership opportunities that being in an ICB presents. So thinking about um, supporting people with, let's say, the prevention agenda and health promotion, supporting people through the lifespan. So how do we how do we support people um, from age minus nine months? You know, how do we support uh, families who are starting out, um, you know, at conception to have a healthy maternity period, to um, look after their children well and feel supported and nurtured when they're going through um, those early years? How do we support our young people with from, uh, you know, through education? How do we tap into education? Um, and then thinking as well about the fact that we have developed much stronger links with some of the other sectors through the pandemic. So I, I don't know what other experiences in other parts of the country were like, but in Lancashire, our resilience forum um, subgroups and cells offered a really brilliant opportunity for collaborating with people and groups that we had never collaborated with before. And we we had we already had a strong um, voluntary community faith and social enterprise alliance. Um, and, you know, we've had a, a working relationship with them since pre-pandemic. But how do we start to really tangibly bring those other sectors along on the on the journey with us? And um, and I guess there's something probably in there as well about sharing data with the right people at the right time. Um, so we have a serious violence reduction unit that are looking at exploring data sharing across sectors in Lancs and South Cumbria so that um, we can support upstream that the causes of violence, violent, violent behaviour, the causes of 
poor health outcomes, the causes of poor educational achievement and employability, etc. So, um, yeah, I, I'm just curious to know how others are thinking about that wider and academia. That's the other one I didn't mention. How do we how do we bring all those people into the fold in a tangible way? Excellent. Thank you, Linda. Um, I think we'll come to Glenn first this time. Right. OK, this I, I, I will preface everything I was saying here by the fact that um, this is not my area of expertise as far as you know, I'm a technologist and that's my that's my forte. Nevertheless, turning it slightly around to favour my area of expertise slightly, perhaps, you know, the way we're working at the moment, I'm, I'm specifically delivering, you know, virtual wards. We're, we're all working with those at the moment. Um, and one of the things we're doing there, we're working with our county council colleagues as well, who are delivering a similar offering of remote care, mon falls monitoring and so forth like that. But what we're trying to do, and we're working with the suppliers, with the developers and so forth in that sense, that we have a common set of tools. So if the patient or citizen from the social care perspective is at home, is monitoring falls, they might be you know, wearing blood pressure cuffs, pulse oximeters, whatever it might be, but that same equipment will move with the patient. So should that patient have a fall, be admitted to hospital for a broken hip and so forth, the patient, the consultant will have some data ahead of that fall because they were recognised as being at risk. Therefore, they got that information. So by using the same tools, the same data, which I think you mentioned, Linda, in your, your question as well, you know, the consultant will have some more information about what led up to it. Was there something that caused it in particular, whatever it might be, um, and therefore it helps the patient be identified, you know, be, you know, be treated more efficiently, more effectively. And also once they then leave the acute setting, that same information, that same data will travel with the patient back into social care for perhaps, you know, you know, any adjustments that may be needed to their property, to their care homes, falls or whatever it might be. So we're, we're taking the approach working with social care that our virtual ward follows the patient journey throughout and be before they're even admitted, before they even know they need to be admitted. So it starts before then and it ends when they perhaps are, are fully fit or unfortunately may pass away or whatever it might be. So that's the sort of journey we're looking at, so that how we share it. So it's all about sharing data. As I said, we've also got a fairly active within Suffolk North East Essex. We've been working as an ICS well, for at least two years I've been in here, and I think it was two years prior to that as well. So we've built up a very good relationship with the county councils. We have regular forums with them. The voluntary care sector is actively involved, and we're building a, a database that, where they can act. We, we know the workforce within the voluntary sector, so we can actually say, OK, what, who can help where and when? So that workforce is plugged into the workforce decisions as well that we're talking about, which, which we'll come on to later, no doubt, as well. So how we do it and so forth, you know, bringing them all together, sitting around the same tables, the ICB, you know, it's a, it is one, it is this great opportunity we, we, we touched on previously that we, by working together, we can actually improve health outcomes. We can improve the way, you know, the general health of the population. That's the intent of it. Um, I think if we all get around the same table, then, you know, it sounds like, you know, from us, the four of us on this call here, you know, we're, we're all preaching and we're all around the same table already. We've got to get that message out there a bit more, perhaps. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you for that, Glenn. Um, Zishan, we'll come to you next. Thanks. Um, I've been itching at the back for this question here because um, it's uh, I've had so many things I want to say about this. I mentioned earlier about like uh, parallels. Um, I 
Um, so a bit of backstory. Um, I've been in this type of digital role for about the same time as you, Linda, about five years. And I kept asking when we were at a, at a CCG level before we became ICBs, what are my counterparts doing in everywhere else? And no one would tell me, right? They just like, oh, you know, they're at meetings or, you know, they're there. And I'm like, I kept asking, I kept asking. And then finally, when he kind of went up to an ICB level, I found out one, there were no other counterparts of me in my in the other local CCGs. And then I found, and then when he got all the way up to the ICB level, um, I found out that um, there were in the trusts. And it wasn't until I got the ICB level that I got to find out what everyone else was doing. Um, and when we mentioned about here traditional, uh, beyond traditional healthcare providers, even in healthcare providers, uh, not knowing what the other person is doing. And now we're part of the same ICB and realize, oh, you've been doing this. Oh, you're interested in that referral system, but we wanted to go in that direction. Um, and having all of these things finally aligning so I can get some type of, I hate to say the word synergy because it makes me puke, but you know, it's sort of like, you know, they got this type of, you know, um, convergence of what we were planning to do. And so in now things like virtual awards finally kind of make more sense because I'm not plucking people out of the air to kind of help me create them and run them. Um, and the big thing for us and the thing I've been pushing for in our patch now was the shared care records. Uh, Johnny, am I allowed to say a product? Um, that's what I am. Good. Yeah, um, of course. So, uh, we, we commissioned, um, we procured, sorry, we procured uh, GraphNet to do the shared care record uh, in our patch. And I've been spending the last year or so um, kind of selling it to people. <laughs> um, about, um, and the, the advantages of using it, um, and we're initially starting them at different phases. So GPs, uh, primary care and secondary care, um, and then the aim really for is uh, on phase on our second phase is to discuss with the public about the usage in uh, health inequalities in public health information data and then social services and the social services um, uh, thing, the, uh, the, the sharing of data from social services is incredibly important, as you said, about dangerous individuals, but about vulnerabilities um, and safety cases. Um, and even when it comes to um, uh, post-mortem checks and people who passed away, there's so much um, richness on this data sharing that needs to be done. Um, and then you also mentioned about from, from conception, we still can't get midwives to kind of join these type of shared kid records. So we don't know what's going on in that aspect. And there doesn't seem to be any push for them to kind of integrate into this. It makes it, It's mind-boggling. Um, so... I, I think in regards to ensuring sectors, I think it's really about communicating quite directly with these sectors and say, this is what we're offering. Why don't you want to be part of this program, right? What are your concerns about being part of this program? Uh, because I, I, I do not see how this can disadvantage um, our patients. I don't see how this can disadvantage anyone to be part of this program. You know, if if I have a you know a child present to the A and E department, I would want to know: Do they have a safeguarding issue? Um, uh, if I have a, a younger baby present with with a foster carer, well, I don't know anything about their birth data, right? I don't know anything even about if this is the foster mom. I, I would want to know everything, right? And this is like this is how we kind of it. It sounds so benign. This kind of shared. Oh, everyone. You know, when people used to say to me, "Oh, just check the system. Just check the system." 
right? This is the system that you so desired, right? Do not impede it because it's, I can see no disadvantage to it. Um, and I really can't. Um, so uh, it, it's the it's the kind of thing that I feel is, is, is how we kind of um, bring them along. And what is so important is the engagement. Um, no matter how many times I tell people about this kind of, this is what we're doing. I have some people said, I'm sorry, what is this? Um, but that's always been the case. Um, so I think it's really important to have a really good comms and engagement team and then make sure that you've involved every sector that's involved um, as part of the party. And if not, re-engage them again and again, put it part of their training programs when you inductions, when they do their yearly training uh, induction uh, in trainings that they're supposed to do compulsory, then bring as part of that. So um, there's a lot of parallels and there's a lot of like things running on at the same time. Um, and um, but I, I think it's it, again, it comes down to that engagement and making sure that they know what we're doing. Thank you for that, Zishan. Uh, and Steve, we'll come on to you. It's a blessing and a curse sometimes going last, isn't it? Because um, <laughs> so many brilliant things have already been said. To try and sound any more brilliant is a challenge. Um, uh, I think yeah, I, I echo and and uh, res, you know, all the things that have been said by um, you know, by Linda when she posed the question in terms of the context, Glenn and, and Zishan as well. I think you know if we um, this for me is about, you know, how do we ensure nobody's left behind um, and how do we make sure there's so it's, it's, it's that piece about equity and how do we ensure that there's uh, that people are treated with with equity and access uh, and collaboration. And all those opportunities are, are equitable across your integrated care system and, and wider with the wider partners you, you work with. And I think the only way you can do that, and we talk a lot about collaboration, it's a buzzword, isn't it? Collaboration, partnership, working, you know, crikey, the like the algebraic equation for an ICS is ICP plus ICB, isn't it? So IC integrated care partnership plus integrated care board gives you an integrated care system. So the part the word partnership is in there. Um, and, and I think there's something about like any relationship. How do you get to that point where um, it's a really um, strong relationship, a really high performing relationship? And I think that only comes with trust. And I think the way you the one of the one of the main ways you can ensure that people aren't disadvantaged, aren't treated differently, aren't left behind, is to really understand, well, where are they starting from? You know, and you need to have that appreciation of, um, you know, uh, people you're, you need to collaborate with, the different parts of the system, uh, where, where are they starting from? And that's where you start from them in terms of your design from a solution perspective. Because I think, you know, how often do we see solutions bought in and it, and it, and it works perfectly for, um, the NHS, maybe because they're slightly more advanced, and there's slightly more investment in certain areas, and and that that's great. But in other parts of the the, the wider system and and um, the arms length partners are, are are really disadvantaged because they just don't have the same infrastructure and they don't have the capability to develop that infrastructure as well. So I think one has to have really honest, open conversations, and that requires an awful lot of trust in in, in one another and in oneself in terms of how that information is going to be received and then used. I think there's a lot of nervousness when we talk about true collaboration because naturally, and again, it goes the same way, doesn't it, with human relationships. When we open ourselves up and we expose ourselves to other people, um, we maybe expose what could be perceived to be a weakness or or a, or a, or a fault, um, and um, that doesn't feel comfortable. But we need to understand that to then truly understand where are we starting from in order to build this in the right way. We can all start at the same point in this journey and then come together. 
And I think if we think about that word digital, which I said at the very beginning is an unhelpful word, the two things that always spring to my mind when I say digital, the first one isn't technology. In fact, the second, third and fourth one isn't technology. The first two things that spring to my mind are first and foremost being user centered. So getting the people who have an understanding of what the user needs, including the user themselves around the table is really important. And that is often uh, some of our um, uh, partners who are a bit further out from the ICS partnership. Uh, and outside out of, out of that inner circle and then the other part for me is about systems focus so not systems in the um sense of you know um, a computer system but in the sense of systems working and that collaboration again and that approach of being truly collaborative um truly um open and honest and trusting uh, with our partners to then be able to have that collaboration appreciate where we all are and start to design the solution to our problem um from that point, making sure we build in equitable access, building partnerships, not being afraid to look outside the traditional integrated care system model, you know, reaching out to external partners, industry, other sectors, and learning from what they're doing and inviting them in and being just as open with them um, with the expectation they'll be just as open with us in return. And I think by doing that, you stand a much better chance. I, 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 I couldn't sit here today and say, that's the golden bullet. But I think for me, if you adopt that as a as a um, as a culture and an ethos and, and an approach, um, then you're going to be in a, a much better place in terms of making sure that everybody is included and everybody is taking on the journey with you. Perfect, great way to round that off. Thank you for that, can Steve. I, can I that, some reflections? Just of course, that, that, that's been really really valuable, and and I think Zishan's um, comments around even within healthcare. Um, getting getting people collaborating and recognizing that you know what one side of the system is doing and the other side of the system that's a really valid point we we need to get it right in house first don't we um there was a few things that that uh the conversation sort of brought up for me one is around um duplication and i think um digital people the people because we are an enabling function Often we are the first people to realise that something's happening in two parts of the system by different groups of people. Um, and that's that's something I've recognised locally and it's something I've recognised from conversations with the centre where, you know, the former NHS EID and X would have similar teams doing different things and not aware. But because we were the common thread, we were able to, to join them up. Um, so I think there's something really about preventing duplication and making sure that we're making the best of the assets we've got. Um, as Glenn was talking about, you know, common sets of tools, common sets of data. I think that's really valuable. Um, there's an acronym that we use for data, which is um, COUNT. So that's collect, collect once and use a number of times. Um, and the idea that, you know, the data should follow the person and, and the data should be per personally held probably as well, because my data then I can share my data wherever I need to share it I think is invaluable um, and Zishan's comments about um, different data sets that would be really useful one of the um, really fascinating insights we had when we were part of one of the earlier population health management accelerator programs a few years ago was that assisted bin collections people who needed help to put their bins their wheelie bins out on bin day were um, clinically very likely to be frail. So we helped identify people who were frail, who hadn't been recognised in healthcare as being frail because of using local government data. And that's not social care data, it's district council data. So I think there's lots of value to be added um, 
from from council data. And then just the final thing um, around Steve's points around collaboration and engagement. Um, just today, we've had a conversation in our team around the impact of virtual working. So in the days when we were in a single building and we were able to pop down the corridor or you regularly saw people who worked in other programmes of work, it, it sort of sparked that reminder, oh, we, we definitely should engage with X, Y and Z. And because we're now working in a virtual environment, we try our very best to engage the right people at the right time. But sometimes we, you know, we miss people who should be at the table or we don't invite them until a later, a later date. And I think there's something about our processes being much more robust in terms of sharing information about programmes. So, you know, having a really robust PMO function in the ICB, that means when someone says they're doing something in transformation, it gets flagged to digital straight away if there's a potential digital impact. Um, so that, you know, that we're, we're not waiting for people to know to come to us that there's some level of automation built in. Um, and that's with known stakeholders. Obviously, then with the wider stakeholders, uh, there's something around um, having the right people at the governance tables. So ensuring that, you know, our, our local government and academic partners and um, AHSNs, et cetera, are, are seated at the governance groups um, and then capitalising on our social networks. And hopefully now that we're getting out a little bit more, it'll be become much easier to tap into our social networks now that we can start to see each other. Excellent. Thank you, Linda. Zishan, did you just have something you want to quick say before we move on? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's just the, the duplication thing is, is interesting because when you when you tell two groups of people that, you know, one of them's got to stop doing what they're doing, you always feel like you're depriving a child of a toy, you know, um, and you, you know, people get quite upset. Um, digital clinical safety is something we haven't mentioned at all because uh, but it's 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 interesting because it, it, it also gives you an idea of the level of work, because that's where I found a lot more of the collaboration I've had to do recently has come from because there are more projects which are integrated across the whole board. When I do digital clinical safety, I'm actually having to force involve everyone from the different aspects, but it actually kind of enforces an engagement on uh, people and it kind of lets a lot more, um, a, a lot more of that, uh, the dirty word of collaboration, but it lets a lot, a lot more of it in. So it, it's just something that should always really be on our forefront, really, of what we're thinking. Excellent. Thank you for that, Zisha. Um, right, we'll move on to our last question then. Glenn, over to you. Thank you very much. Right, yeah, the, the last question then. So how do we shape and secure the workforce will be, that will be needed to support a digitally transformed NHS? What I'm thinking about there, I'm particularly focusing on the virtual wards, remote care type activities at the moment where the, the requirements of a clinician is going to be to sit in front of a screen monitoring you know that screen as opposed to physically sitting beside a patient and so forth um so how do we secure that sort of level of knowledge that's that you know what needs to change as far as their ability that their, their um interfacing with computers their familiarization with that how do we tap into that sort of resource how do we get that sort of resource in the first place without you know going around the houses of um you know, issuing, you know, coming across the problems of the technophobe as well. We we want, do we got to retrain staff? How do we refocus them? I, you know, the, all these questions spring up as soon as you start talking about that. Um, so I'm interested to hear other people's views and opinions and the problems no doubt you're having. Excellent. Thank you, Glenn. Uh, Zishan, we'll come to you first this time. Uh, thanks, uh, Johnny. It's it's uh, it's a pleasure to be first. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> 
Um, I, I, I really think it's an interesting question because we have an, uh, as Glenn's pointing out, we have an aging workforce here. Um, and I think someone, I remember uh, being asked by the BBC years ago, um, never ended up having an interview for it, thanks. John. But um, <laughs> about um, the, the average age uh, for GP in um, West Birmingham, San Juan, West Birmingham, back when that was the CCG, was somewhere about like 65 plus, right? Um, and um, a good winter would kind of sort that out. But it's, um, it's, 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 many of them were very, um, uh, very opposed to any type of um, evolution of their, of the changing of their practice, especially things, simple things like EPS uh, referrals um, and uh, kind of progressing. But then we then had this also parallel issue of this young workforce who due to numerous other things could not actually be used to their full capacity so we had uh, many people who do for basically for childcare reasons could not be used to their full capacity uh, were basically missing out on income missing out on um was it uh, contributing to the workforce to the level that they were satisfied with because of simply other commitments and covid uh, ironically kind of um, unlocked a lot of those by moving a lot of them to the virtual sphere. Uh, a lot of, with a lot more telephonies and virtual consultations, we suddenly had access to this massive workforce. And I remember in the first few months when we closed everything down, all of a sudden um, there was no such thing as um, uh, lack of appointment availability. All of a sudden, everyone had access, right? Because all of a sudden, we had a million people available to take these calls. But then we decided to get another thing here, and that's the bit about security is start getting burnout. Um, uh, two years in now, and um, the demand seems to have never really sided. It seems to have just exponentially increased, and people are getting tired. Um, so how do we secure this workforce? I mean, there were things I saw about um, su uh, supportive measures such as psychological sessions, therapy sessions, kind of chill out groups. But the thing is, is that when you tell a person who's very busy, oh, go and to join, go to this type of group. I was like, I don't have time to go on this type of group. I've got to do a school run. I've got to go pick up my kids, right? You know, and then log back in and look at another hundred lab reports, right? I don't have the time for this. Um, so uh, Glenn's question is excellent, and the problem I have is I don't have a great answer for it, because it's um, it's it's the it's the most depressing question. <laughs> so um, <laughs> it's um, it, it, I, I remember it, it also brings me back to when Babylon and GP at hand first came around, and so many primary care physicians were quaking their boots because when they started to reach out of London, they came to Birmingham. Um, and um, many, many older GPs who, again, were problematic in the whole shaping of the workforce um, came to me saying, we're concerned about GP at hand. We're concerned that they'll take all of our patients and destroy our income um, kind of uh, our, our income structures. And again, COVID solves that problem because what they were doing was supposed to be unique was no longer unique anymore. Um, it then became actually everyone can do this. Um, and then patients realize that they actually enjoyed continuity of care, which they're far more likely to get with their local GP practice. Um, so it um, one of the things about uh, GP at hand, which allowed, though, was an insane amount of availability, right? an unsustainable amount of availability. 
and again allow that flexible workforce, but also leading to that burnout question. So, but I told uh, a lot of uh, GPs that what they're doing is essentially they're just creating more availability. That's all they're doing. And what people need to do in about securing the workforce is that um, we have a lot of, uh, we, we just simply don't have the amount of people that we should be having. A lot of the AR roles that are being introduced aren't really doing what they need. Um, if you ask most GPs, and I'm sorry, I keep bringing back to primary care when this is an entire systemic question, but as a primary care physician, this is where I live. Um, and it's um, what we want, uh, what, what, what we'll say we want, it is what we want, is more of us, right? Um, because that's what people want and that's what we feel would actually help us. Um, so securing the workforce, um, I think there's, there's such a burnout drain that people are simply packing their bags and leaving and you can offer them as much money as you want, but um, if everyone's tired um, and everyone's exhausted, um, I can't really suggest anything else differently. So I actually think that we may have to really think of this as more of a political type question um, of a restructure of the way we recruit and the way we manage and the way we retain um, um, the people uh, who are um, providing this type of service. Um, and yeah, sorry, it's a very depressing answer for me, but um, it's a really important question um, that requires, unfortunately, a more a systemic, widespread systemic change, and my opinion um, for that. Glenn, thank you for that, Zishan. Uh, Steve, we'll come to you next. Thanks, Johnny, and thanks for the question, Glenn. Um, I must admit, my, my eyes lit up when I saw this question on the on the list. Um, you know, uh, being the head of digital workforce, um, I hope I've got some thoughts and ideas in this area. Um, it is it is a huge challenge, as as Ishan alludes to. You know, um, the the workforce retention, full stop, for the NHS is a big challenge, as is workforce um, recruitment in the current climate. Um, you know, no longer can the, the the NHS rely purely on the those three letters, the the NHS, to simply draw people in. Um, you know, there, there is a huge amount of um, uh, people still wanting to work in the NHS, but nothing like the numbers I think we we used to see, and nothing that our um, recruitment procedures and systems were were once set up for. Um, I think for me, in terms of you know, how do we how do we secure uh, and shape the, the the workforce that we need um, to support the future? Uh, and to create that future uh, as well. I think there's a realization that, you know, um, the jobs that will be available in, well, people say 30 years, I think it'll be less than that, 20 years, 10 years time. Um, we don't even know what they are yet. There'll be jobs that will be created um, in the next 10 years that will be completely new with new skill sets and, and it'll be very much sort of focused on, on addressing uh, the future and, and, and maximizing the opportunities that the digital age presents to us. But I think we have to start somewhere. And I think, you know, in terms of First and foremost, you know, that, that shaping and also securing the workforce in terms of from a recruitment perspective, um, we need um, we, we need an understanding of what we need from our workforce to be able to do that in terms of the capabilities. So uh, we need to um, have something like a digital capability framework uh, where we can actually identify these are the capabilities people in these different roles need. We can then build those into um, the different job descriptions in terms of them being able to create an exciting product. And I think if we look at um, recruitment and attraction almost as a sales process, which out in other industries, it is seen as a sales process. Um, you know, the the best promotions in the world, 0% finance, um, you know, buy now, pay five years time, um, don't sell a product if the end product isn't, isn't exciting, isn't interesting. So we've got to look at our end product and start to think about actually for our workforce, how can, 
how can we make those roles more accepting, more exciting, more diverse? And I think when you look at um, uh, retention, when you look at um, you know, questionnaires around what would be appealing to staff, um, Zishan, you're absolutely right, it's not more money. Um, less work would be nice, maybe less pressure, but diversification seems to come up more, more and more often because it is a bit like um, you know, uh, being able to take a break from using your skills and knowledge in one way to be able to apply them in a different way is as good as having a rest in some ways. And it makes it, it keeps that spark alive. It keeps that energy alive within the individual in terms of retaining that person's workforce. But to be able to do that, we need to understand the capabilities and have that framework so we can build them into different job descriptions and create new and exciting roles for people. Um, we endorse it. Um, have built a digital capability framework based upon our digital strategy and our digital maturity matrix. So we've looked at and broken that down in terms of in order to achieve that vision and realize that strategy, what skills and capabilities do our workforce need? And we've then broken that down into a, into a framework um, which we can then uh, utilize to assess our need because I think the other challenges we have is we don't know what we don't know. And when talking about digital, I think it still is such a big unknown. Uh, there's a number of conversations I go into at a local or regional, even a national level sometimes, and you talk about what's the, what do people need when it comes to digital skills? Um, and some of the first words that come out of people's mouths are, well, project management would be good. Yeah, pause for laughter. Um, project management skills are good and everybody needs them. But again, it's not making project managers, it's project management capabilities. Um, but is that really what we need to digitally enable our workforce? The answer there is probably no, but it demonstrates the reality of we don't know what we don't know. So we need that we need that framework first of all to understand actually what are what are our needs. We can do that needs analysis, and we can then develop the training or procure the training uh, to then um, develop the workforce. The methodologies for me don't change um, in terms of how we deliver that through through tried and tested methods. But I think there are new creative opportunities whether we can apply. So again, things that have worked well for us in Dorset, we've created digital fellowships. So created that space using the fellowship model for clinical staff to apply their clinical learning, their education, their skills and their experience in a very different way, focusing on embedding um, new digital services. So thinking about um, BP at home, blood pressure at home uh, is one very prominent in uh, Dorset at the moment in the primary care space, um, being led by digital fellows. So clinicians who have stepped out of the day job through a funded fellowship scheme, supported with a very supportive framework, including leadership development, um, you know, mentorship, coaching alongside it, that puts them in a safe space so they're not exposed. Again, going back to that trust part that we spoke about, I think, in the earlier point. So they feel that they're in a safe space to be able to develop alongside the work that needs to be done. And they're gaining all that experience. They're gaining all that learning as well um, of uh, implementing a new digital service alongside the digital subject matter experts, the technical folk, um, and bringing all their clinical expertise to it. Whilst, and Zisha made the point earlier on about a topic we could probably talk for hours about, is the digital clinical safety piece whilst also then uh, bringing up that person's level of awareness and capability around digital clinical safety. Um, in fact, it's worked so well for us in Dorset that two of our very first nurses, general practice nurses, who took on the fellowships to embed um, some of the work around um, my, the MyM health work around sort of my COPD, uh, my diabetes, um, say the blood pressure, the blood pressure at homework, uh, have now become the first the two first um, chief nursing information officers, the chief nurse information officers, sorry, uh, in the whole of the country. Uh, and it just goes to show the potential those fellowships um, offer in terms of a development pathway when you get the framework of support right around it. But then also, yeah, yeah so there's, there's lots of wins there, lots of strategic wins we can tick. So 
that's great. We've been able to then deliver those um, digital transformation or digital service transformation um, programs of work. Um, we've um, supported the development of those um, individuals, but it spreads much further than that as well, because then it starts to look at, well, have we we've enriched um, the experience of those individuals and by them progressing, there's a greater chance I would offer that we of, of us retaining them for the short term, the medium term and even the longer term because of that journey they've been they've been on and how they've then shared that journey with their peers and, and wider. So then you start sort of linking with other core objectives and strategic objectives around things like um, re re retention. Um, the, the, the fellows themselves or the CNIOs as they now are speak openly and, and widely about the opportunity they've had um, and the opportunities that we're still creating here in Dorset. So then you're increasing your retention opportunity because you're attracting people uh, to the NHS. And, and I'm speaking specifically about Dorset, trying not to use this as a promotional opportunity for working in Dorset. Um, but you know, wherever you work, the NHS, I think, can use this as an opportunity to say, these are the great opportunities we can create through portfolio working, through fellowships. So we're attracting, we're retaining the workforce, we're developing the workforce, shaping and moulding all the way along. The other piece of work that then happens in the background is you, know, you say you're looking at that training needs analysis so you can embed that digital framework in that process in order to identify what are the needs of our wider workforce and also you can then start to use that as well what are the needs of our citizens our people of dorset to then build and find the solutions that we need to be able to increase their their digital capabilities uh, and that's very much something that, that, that we're doing and that co-delivery piece that co-design piece again about working collaboratively um to to deliver that so you're you're bringing the workforce on the journey and i think again the, the framework uses sort of four levels. One is a basic awareness level, which would be appropriate for the majority of the workforce, but then it starts to go into more in-role development, and then all the way up to like level four, which is kind of a mastery for your subject matter experts. So you're then linking in as well with your your digital teams, your um, IMNT, you know, your, your traditional informatics type roles um, as well, who are in that, that space. I think all of that's great, but also you need the right culture around it. Um, and uh, Linda made the point right at the beginning of the intros about the importance of that word culture in her title and that really connected with me because i think if we haven't got the culture right if people don't feel they've got the permission if people don't feel that they are safe to uh, engage they won't and they're that that there are two things permission and safety are two things that if you, if you don't have them can equally create fear within people for all the right reasons especially in a clinical setting um, so there's something about how do we remove that fear by enabling people and giving them permission and making sure they're working in a safe way. And that comes back to the clinical safety piece and treating clinical safety the same way as we would around um, uh, data protection. Everybody needs to know about data protection. Everybody needs to have clinical safety to the right level. Every employee needs to know about that. Um, and for me, the, the culture piece is about um, not, it's not top down. This is a social movement here. We've got to start lighting fires you know we can't expect the traditional top-down approach to work here i don't think yes it's important it's a, it's a way of doing it but for me it's about social movement we should be starting parties as i say um in all different parts of the system playing the music loud telling everybody how good the beer is so that everybody wants to come to the party of digital and everybody moves in that social way and everybody is enabled and empowered and feels safe to do so you know, most of us now are working with Office 365. In Office 365, you've got Power Apps, you've got BI, and you've got automation apps. Wouldn't it be great if we got to a place where everybody in the NHS felt safe and empowered to be able to look at their daily workload and using automation tools and say, what can I automate? So the things that the, the technology does what the technology can do best, and I'm freed up to do what I do best as a human being. 
we should be at that point, but we're not. And again, that's about where the NHS is now on our journey versus the other parts of the industry. So I think it is there. And I think the last bit, I've, because I recognise I've, I've gone on probably longer than I could have should have done, but <laughs> the last bit for me then about attracting the you know, uh, recruitment of the workforce, I think outside of the examples I gave about how we make the product attractive, it's things like the grad schemes, you know, engaging with you know, the universities as well, though, to embed digital capabilities with our undergrads and, 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 and through the education route back. So they're even, they've got those capabilities before they even land in the NHS. And what we do is just further enhance those. We develop the grad schemes as well alongside that to bring graduates in and further develop their skills. We maximise the use of apprenticeships. And then there's the bit for me about the people that don't fit the academic mould. Um, and, and actually, I think digital is a, a real opportunity um, and, and digital capabilities in particular. There's a real opportunity to explore here around community engagement and finding your workforce in a different way than the academic route. And the NHS needs to be really brave, I think, to start to put in place some com uh, community schemes where you um, where you work with people maybe in areas that you know people in those areas wouldn't normally find themselves having a career in the NHS or social care, um, and we work with those communities and those areas um, to build programs that can bring gifted people and talented people into our system. And I think again, digital presents a really uh, really good opportunity for us to do that. I'm going to stop because I could probably talk for a whole hour <laughs> all by myself, and that's not fair to everybody else, but. I did say it's it, you know, probably my strong, you know, my biggest area of passion, which you can probably tell. No, excellent. Thank you for that, Steve. Really, really useful. Uh, over to you, Linda. I know it's tough uh, going last and uh, following that. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say it's not going to be an easy act to follow on, on that, Steve. Um, so, yeah, I suppose um, in thinking about the question uh, pre today, I've been taking a bit of a helicopter view, really, and thinking, you know, what do we mean, first of all, by our workforce? Because we have our informatics and digital and IMT workforce, and then we have our wider workforce, and then we have our, our senior leaders and our execs. And I think um, it's important not to leave any of those behind when we think about um, the digitally transformed NHS and ICBs. Um, you know, we need to make sure that our execs have the understanding and knowledge to be able to see how, how transformation in the digital age works as opposed to digital transformation and um and you know as much as uh, our our informatics workforce need the support and training and um career progression opportunities our wider workforce do as well so going back to my early days as a physio i think about uh 20 18 years ago maybe I was, they used to call me the Excel queen because I used to capture lots of data on uh, Excel spreadsheets and produce nice reports in Word at the end of every quarter and every year around, you know, what our service was doing and, and how we were working and, and, and what our sort of outputs were. Um, and, and I suppose that's one of the reasons I'm here in digital now, because I can see the power and the potential of data. And I think there's increasingly more um, frontline staff who, either are or want to be data literate, not just not just have digital skills and be digitally ready, but actual data literacy is a really important one. We have some of our um, real champions for population health management are some of our GPs and practice managers, and they couldn't wait to get their hands on the data and be able to analyze the data and play with the data. So there's something about our frontline staff having the skills and support that they need. Um, 
and then our informatics staff. So we're very fortunate in the Northwest to have an informatics skills development network. And I think ours was the first in the country, or if not the first, then one of the first. And um, that program is now rolling out nationally. We're really fortunate that there is a significant amount of support and training and opportunity from the, the skills development network um, for our staff. And um, they developed, I think it was in 2013, they launched an excellence in informatics program that trusts traditionally were signed up to as an ICB. Now we've signed up and, and you know, we want to go through that process of accreditation that says we value our informatics workforce enough to ensure that they have the skills to do their job. Um, and, and then that's where your retention comes in because you've got really good career progression. Um, but going back to the the, the, the main frontline workforce, um, I think there's the digital skills and the data literacy, but then there's that new ways of working. And, and I think everybody's alluded to that. So we are, you know, digital, digital transformation or transformation in the digital age isn't about doing uh, the same things differently, you know, transforming a paper exercise into an online exercise. It's about radically changing the way we, we deliver care. And um, and I think our, our staff need to be comforted and assured during that process. So, you know, talking about robots delivering orthopedic surgery, in some cases, robots are really helpful uh, to support the workforce, but we are never going to have frontline clinicians and staff out of jobs because we simply haven't got enough staff to deliver care in a timely manner at the moment. So. I think it's about that reassurance and that maybe is back to, to trust and feeling safe as well. But then some of the things that have cropped up through listening to people uh, as we've as we've been talking through the question is around the new workforce. So, you know, yes, we have an aging workforce who will you know gradually be retiring and and some of them by by default are less digitally literate, less digitally inclined, less digital desire to, to, to work digitally. And that's OK. But as our new workforce start to uh, emerge, you know, we're looking at millennials and, and Gen Zs and those younger people in theory will be pretty digitally literate anyway, but they'll also be very used to an opportunity to work in different ways. So there's something about traditional career profiles and traditional ways of working. So the last two years have meant that we now routinely, I, I work from home almost all of the time. Um, and that brings its good points and its bad points. But that flexibility to be able to four or five years ago, there's no way that clinicians would have been encouraged to, um, let alone allowed, to uh, deliver care from you know the comfort of their home but now we're starting to work in a different way and there's an expectation that that roles will change um uh, steve mentioned um career diversity so my my career started as a physiotherapist and once i had the opportunity to become an advanced practitioner that that change and that new learning stimulated me to to do something differently and to really thrive in my job again and then i got to the point where i needed to do something different again and i moved into transformation as a project manager and then I moved into a clinical digital leadership role. And I think we've got to recognize that our workforce need to be able to um, 
navigate the waters in a, in a non-linear fashion. It's not a linear career progression route anymore. And we've got to have that flexibility built in. And um, we've got to remember as well that um, a lot of people are, are more interested in having a portfolio career. They want to do a bit of clinical work, a bit of digital work, a bit of something else. Um, and, and allowing that to, to be a, a normal sort of route would be um, would be absolutely brilliant. Um, and yeah, going back to Steve's comment, this is my final thing, going back to Steve's comments about Office 365. I'm sitting with a full suite of Office 365 and I am a digital leader. And I know that there's so much I could be doing to make my day flow much more easily. And, and I haven't had the headspace or the time to pause and to learn and to explore. And, and that's me in this role. Our frontline staff are telling us the same thing. They haven't got the headspace and the, the physical capacity. This has gone back to Zishan's comments about workload over the last few years. There isn't the headspace to innovate. And if we want to try and encourage and support our frontline staff on that journey with us, I think one of the first things we need to do is with minimal um, expectation or ask from frontline staff, we need to give them tools that immediately make a difference to their daily, daily working life. Because I know that I could be much more effective in my job if I could automate some of the things that I do do in the day. If I could filter some of the and, and I do filter some emails that I, you know, are mailing lists and things. But if there was a much more automation built into the way we worked, then it would free us up to, to do what we do best. And at the moment, what I do is to, to lead and clinically support a digital team um, for a frontline member of staff that might be supporting a patient or it might be, um, you know, supporting a, a, an admin team. And, and if we can just create that headspace and, and capacity for people, I think they'll want to come on the journey much more easily with us. Brilliant. Thank you for that, Linda. Uh, Zishan and Steve, if you both just quickly, uh, Zishan, do you want to? Uh, okay, uh, I just want to head up there that uh, the urology department at Royal Wolverhampton Hospital, which is in my patch, has used a robot to do prostate surgery for a very long time. Um, even when I was a trainee, they, uh, they were they were doing it. So it's apparently a pretty successful program. So. Um, I didn't want to leave my last question for Glenn Jack with a lot of negativity. So I've been just like um, trying to kind of bolster some other things. Is I did mention about older age and, and GPs, but to be fair, Bill Gates is pushing 70 something now. So I do say that to a lot of people when it comes to additional enabling that, let's be honest, you're not older than him, right? Um, and um, it's one of one of the questions that we going out to an actual problem. And the problem was, is how do we improve that kind of that balance and these kind of and encouraging these kind of portfolio careers. There are like programs available and we do have them locally of helping people once they've graduated and passed their kind of initial training in primary care, especially uh, what we call the first five year programs. Um, and they've been running for some time, but it's often used to help in retaining the workforce. Um, and these are kind of things that I think really does need to be kind of pushed and I'd encourage uh, people to kind of go for these type of portfolio careers. So a lot of the primary clinical leads, the pickles as they were, a lot of them are actually newly qualified GPs, which is actually quite encouraging to see. And it's kind of seeing this kind of diversification, which leads to kind of a longer career path. Um, uh, yeah, and I have to say one thing about GP at hand is that the one, the doctors I know who work for them have actually been very happy to work for them 
they've actually really enjoyed the experience. And I think if one thing to say for a lot of other primary care physicians to learn from that, especially older, more senior partners, is why are these uh, younger, uh, younger clinicians actually preferring to work for this type of person? These are the type of questions you should be asking to try to change the experience you're giving to these people to also help retain your workforce. So I have to give that to TP at hand. They have given a very good experience to those uh, uh, physicians. Um, I'll, I'll let Stephen come in there. Thank you, Zishan. Over to you, Steve. Thanks, Johnny. So I think I just wanted to come back. I think there's a point I made about um, the, the future roles and um, the title of a few roles that we've seen um, introduced into um, the NHS and certainly into our system um, recently um, uh, are roles like digital care coordinator um, and data ambassador and digital champion. Now, again, at that point about you know 10 years time, 20 years time, what other roles are going to exist? Now, if we look back five years, three years, did we did we ever think that we'd see those roles uh, within the NHS? I, I don't know, I suspect not, um, but very much um, have come about for us. And the the again, a, another mechanism that we've used to help develop those roles, which I didn't mention earlier on, is the, the power of communities of practice. So bringing people together uh, who have a shared who have a shared goal, who have a shared practice uh, to help develop those new roles has been really, really key to the success of embedding them successfully. And again, that framework of support you can build around them as part of the community of practice. Uh, to help shape the roles and shape their practice. So yeah, I kind of want to just finish it there, really, in terms of you know coming back to that point about new roles and roles we might never have thought we'd ever see. Um, it's been been a fascinating journey for us and continues to be so. Brilliant. Thank you for that, Steve. Uh, Glenn, I hope that answered your question. I was going to say it was. Uh, I think wow was what I've written down. Here. There's so much I've notes and I've scribbled down here. And I'm I'm going to be coming back to you all. I think at some point just to pick your brains further because there's some absolute gold nuggets in there. I want to pick your brains on further. So thank you very much. Excellent. Well, amazing. That takes us to the end of today's podcast. Uh, obviously, I want to take the opportunity to thank you all again for providing such great insights into the topic. Uh, I've definitely learned a lot today. I'm sure everyone listening will feel the same. Um, so thank you all again for your participation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.